So it's 2005. I'm 11 years old. And I am in the sixth grade at my predominantly black private school. My English teacher, who is also black, is handing out copies of this poem called, Lord, Why Did You Make Me Black? Anyone in here know that one? So for everyone who doesn't have a black auntie, the poem is about this speaker who's asking God, why does she have to be black of all races? And she starts listing all these things that the world has taught her are negative, like her thick lips, her coarse hair, even her dark complexion itself. Now the teacher is still passing out copies and I'm looking at the first stanza or two and I'm like, damn, this is a list of things I've thought about myself is a list of things the outside world has taught me to think about blackness. Now, I've always been proud to be black, don't get me wrong, but I would often sit in church on Sundays with my mom and wonder, why would God make a whole race of people that are inferior? Now, the second half of this poem is God responding to the girl. He goes, well, I made you black because black is beautiful. I gave you thick lips so that every time you kiss someone, they remember you. I gave you hair like lamb's wool because I'm your shepherd. I gave you skin black as coal because coal makes precious diamonds. And our teacher says, this is going to be more important than any other poem you learn at this entire school. I want all of you to read it to the people who are sitting next to you. And I hesitate. The weight of the paper had changed to me. So then I look up from the paper at my classmates, and for the first time in my life, I see how beautiful they are. I see the resiliency of their ancestors between their eyes. I see the divinity in the roots of their hair. I see the golden hue in their dark skin. So I read the poem, and then I sit down, and I'm thinking about everything that black people have been through. I'm only 11 but I already know about things like mass incarceration and redlining. I already know about slavery and Jim Crow and the civil rights era. I know that black people have been through such hell and we're still going through such hell. But here we are, being magical nonetheless. Thank you. What up? I'm Bryce Huffman. This is Same Same Different. I first read that poem when I was 11. I'm 25 now, but I still feel myself going back to those words when I'm not feeling attractive enough or smart enough or good enough. Today we've got two people whose work is a lot like that poem. It flips the script. It helps us see the richness in just being us. And we're going to talk about why that's important. Virgie Tavar is a writer and body image activist. She wrote the book, You Have the Right to Remain Fat. And Kiese Lehman is a writer from Mississippi. He's known for his book, Heavy, an American memoir. He also wrote the short story collection, How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Yes. All right. So first, I'm going to throw up 10 seconds on the clock, and I'd like you to both just rattle off all the ways that you identify. Virgie, you can start. Woman, person of color, fat, child of Mexican immigrants, bohemian, public intellectual, coffee snob, hedonist, cosmopolitan, feminist, magic, woke, trauma-informed. You went over 10 seconds, but I will not take anything away from you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and Kiese, whenever you are ready. 
uh, black writer, fat, short arms, tall, big head, um, fake vegan, uh, lover of pound cake and pinto water. <laughs> I like that you shouted out the short arms. People forget about us with the T Rex arms. They forget, fam. The short arms make you. They make or break you. You know, in terms of height. I think it took away my basketball career. Really. <laughs> <laughs> now, like I said, the show is all about identity and it's about otherness. Uh, so, what are some of the negative things that people have tied to the identities you just listed? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind was thinking about growing up fat and um, and a girl. And, uh, you know, everyone taught me that everybody in the whole wide world hated people like me. I mean, I don't know, right? Like they were doing really abusive behavior, but they were teaching me that it was my fault. And it's like classic victim blaming psychology. You just kind of like somebody tells you this is how the world works. You're the one who's messed up and you just accept abusive behavior. And it just like, right, you kind of become a weird, complicit party to it, you know, unknowingly. Mm, Yeah, I really feel that. Uh, You know, I I grew up again, like, you know, fat black boy in Jackson, Mississippi. And um, I think the most important thing that I like might distinguish my growing up was that like people didn't really and my community didn't really treat fat black boys with the disdain that they treated like fat black girls. Um, but police did. Do you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, police treated us like, I think regardless of size, actually treated us like men, um, which meant mm-hmm. that they could, you know, ironically touch our bodies in any way they wanted to. Um, they could say they saw us do things with our bodies that we know we didn't do. So. Mm-hmm. And along in and, and this weird way, I think police sadly dictated a lot of what I thought about myself um, when I was a young person. You know, when police say they saw you throw crack out of a window or they saw you rob something. Um, the crazy thing is for a second, there's always that moment where you're like, wait a minute, did I do it? You know what I mean? Like, mm. yeah, but that I mean, I think that's the scary part of power, like for children particularly you know what i'm saying so so yeah like when you know i mean i also have had a disdain for cops because of what i saw them do but i i have to say at times i i would often you know sit in the back of a police car i'd often be like did i do what they said they saw because what they said mm-hmm. they saw seems so outlandish you know what i'm saying so i'm like mm-hmm. of course nobody could make up something so outlandish but i just think that's the way power works not just carceral power but like power in general i think the people who dictate dictate yeah. Well, like regarding ridiculousness, I was listening. There was like, um, you know, there was like the news playing and I was listening to the case of a football player in Georgia who got accused of having cocaine on his windshield. Right. He was like, it's bird poop. The, right. the cop was like, we tested it. <laughs> right. and, but like, I'm like literally like so like the like the level of absurdity. I can totally see how it would be gaslighting. But also like as I'm listening, I'm thinking about like, you know, disdain versus like carceral power, like soft power, hard power, right. what that looks like, you know, and how it's racialized and gender and class and all this stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. What was life like before all that negative stuff kind of got in your head? I just thought, you know, those, those those are great questions. I mean, 
Uh, Virgie, do you remember the negative stuff not being in your head? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting because, like, I do, uh, but I had blocked those memories for a really long time. It took actually several years into, like, learning fat liberation, becoming a fat activist, that those memories began to come back. It's like classic abuse psychology. You have to block out anything that doesn't corroborate the world that you're living in um, because you'll go crazy, right? right? Like. To be fair, I was aware that I was bigger than other children, but I it didn't have any meaning. It didn't have any edge. It just was a fact. And I, and I dealt with that fact very logically. You know, like I, I often tell this story where I'm like, you know, my boyfriend was like the littlest boy, the littlest person in the <laughs> class. And I was, the, and I'm always like that. I'm always like, who is the smallest boy in the class? Because I want that person. Um, and so <laughs> anyway, I call it like Kermit syndrome or something. Um, so I just like, I had, the littlest, tiniest person who was my like boo when I was in preschool. And I remember <laughs> knowing, right? I was like, okay, so I'm a lot bigger than him. So if we're going to play a game where one of us is jumping on the other or like exerting extreme physical force, <laughs> he should be the one who is doing it, right? Like, and I should be the receiver because I could like physically harm him. But wow. it, like, there was no shame. It was just like, okay, yeah, done. Wow. There was like a real logic that kind of preeminated my childhood understanding of my body, but there was absolutely no negative charge to it. And I just remember having this really organic relationship to everything around me. Like everything was, was based in curiosity and pleasure and like leaning into those things really hard. And that included like eating without self-consciousness and jiggling was one of my favorite things to do before I learned fat phobia. You mean like jiggling, like just jiggling your body around? Like coming home from school, (laughs) taking off all my clothes and putting on a jiggle show for my grandma. Um, I mean, right. Like all of us have body fat, but like, right. Like when you jiggle, what's amazing is that like your body, you know, like, let's say I stick out my arm, which I'm doing right now. I stick out my arm (laughs) and there's like a first movement and the jiggle is a second movement. There's kind of like an undulation. And I, I remember I used to love manipulating that feeling because I thought that it was magic. I thought that it was like water, you know, like it was so incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important because I mean, you know, I, I just, I'm just not lucky or I don't know enough to be like the bad stuff started here. The good stuff started here. Like, you know, my mother was um, at times abusive. And the Mm -hmm. thing that made the abuse like most pernicious was that she was also the person who literally was the most tender person in the world to me when she wasn't being abusive. You know, Mm -hmm. we laughed a lot. Um, We made up (laughs) words a lot. Uh, and you know, like we, we held each other's bodies a lot. Like when somebody was crying, I mean, remember, we just wanted to put our hands on that person and let them know we would never hurt them in that way. Do you know? So yeah. I'm just saying, while all of the soft, hard abuse is happening, there's still like the wonder of like my black communities happening. It, I, but I think that wonder makes it all much more complicated and ultimately scary. Tell me about like the first time you thought to yourself you were flipping the script on all the negative stuff that you had been hearing. Like when did you start to really like fight back against that? Uh, I fought back in classrooms. I mean, that's what, that's what I was thinking about your question. I mean, you know, I grew up in Mississippi, predominantly black city, but most of my teachers were all white. And, you know, I learned early on that if my teachers failed me, I was going to get a beaten by my mother because they failed. Yep. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so I just remember pushing back early. You know, if teachers said I did something I didn't do, whether it was second grade, first grade, fourth grade, 
Like I was going to let them know, like, that's wrong. You know, if teachers made me stand up to pledge allegiance to the Confederate flag, I'm like, nah, I'm not standing up to pledge allegiance to that flag. I, I remember trying to push back a lot in classrooms, but like the pushback would often get more discipline. And then I get home and I'd be like, mama, like I'm, I'm just sort of living the rules that you told me to live. And then she'd be like, yeah, but if you live them in school, you're going to get in trouble. So I'm going to have to whip you now because we don't get in trouble in school. But I'm like, if you don't, we can't get in trouble in school. But then how do we also love ourselves in school when teachers don't love us? You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying the complications of it were hard. Both of you in your writing, you talk about times where you were able to like bring a positive light through things that shouldn't necessarily be seen as positive. Like Virgie, you talk about how people might make fun of you for being big. You like kind of own that and you like wear a fur coat. Is is that what you would wear? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. There are strategies that are deployed by people on the margins in all different kinds of ways. So like I remember when you're talking about the fur coat, um, the memory that immediately comes up is being in graduate school and Grad school is that environment and the way that I dealt with both being like, I'm going to complete this degree and I am also feeling extraordinary gaslit at every single moment um, was to weaponize my dissatisfaction. And the way that I decided to do that was to kind of like show up in this hyperbolic, very like working class, like person of color, like, you know, like very from my own background, right? Like yeah. this kind of like ridiculous, superlative, um, next level kind of brown femininity where I was like, I'm going to wear a fur coat. I'm going to wear huge sunglasses at all times <laughs> in seminars. Um, and I'm just going to like, you know, just like be, just be the static in the room that disallows whatever's happening to seem normal. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. Oh, man. I've seen you talk about black abundance. Could you just quickly like... Tell us what that is. Yeah, it's just um, uh, something my friend Lathan created in eighth grade. And, you know, the white teachers did what white teachers did. And in that space, we felt like we were being targeted. We just really wanted to use like the vocabulary words that we had to use to get good grades. Like we wanted to play with them, you know. So like um, abundance was one of the words that he loved. Uh, we threw black in front of it and, you know, it, it just saying it like it made us feel good. And also using words that they told us meant bad things, you know, flipping those words also made us feel good. So anyway, it didn't it that that didn't start in that classroom. That sort of is part and parcel of what black folk in this country have been doing since the beginning of time. But so when you and your friends first started doing this, uh, flipping the script like this, uh, what else did black abundance look like to you? Oh, OK. So, I mean, an example was, you know, we were in school early on. You were taught to wear really tight. <laughs> tight jeans, you know, so we wanted to wear really baggy jeans. You know what I'm saying? Like we were taught to value songs with harmony, right? We started to become obsessed with like rap music, which initially people didn't consider like music, right? So I just think there was a desire from my friends to be as, um, in some ways counterculture as possible. I, I, I think gender complicates that because in some way we also wanted to, you know, the culture told us we needed to be hyper Superman. And I think we tried to be hyper Superman. Um, but in other ways, I think we tried to push back as much as we could. So, like, what advice would both of you give to people who are still struggling with th- just finding that light, 
you know, through through this darkness, you know, help people that are struggling with some of these experiences like on an everyday basis. Right. Um, I mean, I think I think like active listening and active re-listening are just really crucial to me. You know, the rereading of of like, you know, Bell Hooks and the rereading of Morrison and the rereading of Tony Cape on Bar and really like the re-listening to my friends' stories. Like I just think revision has to be the biggest cornerstone of what we call love. And I just want to encourage people, particularly like cisgender people who consider themselves like men, to really think about the importance of listening and re-listening yes. to folks that we haven't been encouraged to listen to. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes that's ourselves. Sometimes it's, it's partners. Sometimes it's parents. Sometimes it's friends. I just think we have to re revisit, you know, and I, I think that's that's crucial to me. But how about you, Virgie? What advice would you be giving to people who are struggling with a lot of the same things you struggled with? As an activist, I often forget that justice is joyful. Mm -hmm. Um, And because I think that I have always associated justice with, um, you know, intense struggle and danger. And it it is those things. But it's also joyful. And like, what does it look like to keep our eye on that prize? Mm -hmm. One question that really changed my life uh, that somebody offered to me was like, what would you do right now if you truly believed that you were precious beyond belief? Hmm. And I think like, you know, when you're somebody who is marginalized, multiply marginalized, the concept of your preciousness is consistently negated day after day. And so I think like when we ask that question of ourselves, um, for me, that's like, you know, what does it look like in a world where I believe that? Am I friends with the same people? Am I talking about the same stuff? What am I doing? What am I wearing? You know, who is around me? What am I dedicating my time to? You know, those are the, those are the pieces of advice I have. Wow. That's great. Yeah. I, so I just I'm stealing all the things you just said. Uh, you said justice yeah. is joyful. I don't think I've ever heard anyone refer to justice mm. as joyful. Yes. Every time I think of justice, I think of like <laughs> I'm going to suffer for the cause. <laughs> right. I'm probably going to get arrested for this. Like I'm thinking of like all of the uh, negative sides of justice. Yes. <laughs> and then and then you someone asked you or what would you do if you were precious beyond belief? What, it, what would you do if you believe that you were precious beyond belief? I mean, I feel like for me in my body, what comes up when I think about that is like the deep way in which racism um, undercuts our humanity and like preciousness is right. Like in, to demand that, to like hold that sacred, to declare it, to defend it. I think that that is that's the work of justice as much as any of the other things that we're doing. This is this has been great. I'm just like really thankful that both of you have taken the time to just like keep it real and and share some more of your stories with me. Yes, of course. Thank you. Thank you for making time for us. If you want to read or hear more from Kiesi Lehman, check out his latest book, Heavy, an American Memoir. And for Virgie, check out her book, You Have the Right to Remain Fat. You can also follow her Twitter hashtag, Lose Hate, Not Wait. So how have you flipped the script? I want to hear from you. You can join the Same Same Different podcast group on Facebook. You can also find me on Twitter at BryceHuffman313. Same Same Different was created by me, Sarah Hewlett, and Jen Guerra. Big thanks to the rest of the team, Bob Scon, Zoe Clark, 
Jody Westrick, Emma Winnowicki, and Dustin Dwyer. Thanks to Stella's Lounge in Grand Rapids for letting us record the story slams there. And shout out to Renette Nia Ebo, the author of the poem, Lord, Why Did You Make Me Black? The logo was done by Sean Mack, and the music is by Jack Phillipson. This week's artwork is by Rosa Nozari. I'm Bryce Huffman. Subscribe to Same Same Different wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, peace. <laughs>